Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today, I'm joined by Ron Brockman, the director of Jacob Technion Cornell Institute and a professor of computer science at Cornell University. Previously, he was the chief scientist of Yahoo and head of Yahoo Labs. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss his new book, Machines Like Us. Ron, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Asim, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Ron, present-day artificial intelligence systems are goal-oriented, are narrowly focused, and are designed to perform singular tasks. There is a view that we should develop artificial intelligence systems that can work in general settings. Before we discuss how this can be achieved, I'm keen to ask you, how do you see the progress uh, that we have made in developing these narrowly focused AI systems? Uh, In a nutshell, the progress that we've made is really spectacular and actually in mainly in recent years. I've been in the field myself for more than 40 years. And uh, even though there was great excitement about the possibility of AI at the very beginning, back in the 1950s and early 1960s, uh, a lot of the work ended up being most successful in, as you say, narrow domains and narrow tasks. In fact, in, in a kind of environment that we like to think of as a closed environment where the moves that you could make, the operators that you have access to, the things that could happen to you or the artificially intelligent agent were limited and largely prescribed in advance. So let's take a simple case. One of the earliest challenges in AI that originally was thought to be a great test of intelligence because it was generally thought that only highly intelligent humans could be very successful. And as it turned out, it succumbed eventually to uh, things that were not as intelligent in mechanism as we might have expected. And those were some key games like checkers and chess. Uh, let's take chess, generally much, much harder, more complex than checkers. At the very, in the very early days of AI, some of the founders like Herb Simon thought that uh, chess would be an ideal domain to try out this new, newly created technology because in fact, uh, grandmasters were very, there were very few in the world and what they could do was really above and beyond what most average individuals could do, at least so it was felt. And so AI tackled games like chess, and for a while it struggled. It was very hard. It looked at it as what we called a search problem, where uh, the machine would methodically analyze each move subsequent to a proposed move, and that would branch out in the form of what looks like a tree, right? If I move my pawn in the first move, then my opponent could move any one of quite a few pieces, and then I would have to react to that move with quite a few pieces. And so the, you would get the branching in terms of the numbers of things that could happen. And in fact, the number of possible chessboards towards the end of the game is really astronomical. And that's why it was felt that uh, it would be very challenging to address by early computers. But eventually, as computing power grew and people got more intelligent about search algorithms and started to encode uh, preset sets of openings and end games, uh, eventually chess succumbed to AI technology. And as we know, uh, eventually the Deep Blue system from IBM beat Garry Kasparov, a world champion. And that garnered quite a bit of attention. It was very exciting. And at that point, 
people were wondering whether AI had really arrived and whether it would soon be doing very general things like uh, with mobile robots and self-driving cars and um, uh, systems that would help around the house or in factories doing a wide variety of tasks. Well, as it turned out, the ability of the earliest successful chess playing programs is really a harbinger, I think, of the way AI would go and become successful, which is an intense amount of effort by the people building the system and in training the system in a very, very narrow problem domain. Um, now, I mentioned the term closed before. One of the things about playing chess, at least not with a real board and not with the wind blowing and your children getting in the way, but in the abstract world, is that there's a limited number of pieces. There are a limited number of places you can put the pieces on the board, and the allowable moves for each piece is totally set in advance. Um, that really constrains what you have to look at in order to be prepared for what your opponent might do. Uh, very important element of successful AI programs, I think, working in these closed environments. Uh, subsequently, uh, a little bit later, um, some of the earliest ideas about having artificial systems learn from practice uh, started really to pay off. And part of it was because the computational power that was available to us uh, grew exponentially, and the amount of data that could be used to train such systems was also fabulously large, as um, we had worldwide companies gathering data around, for example, translating languages, or companies like Facebook gathered huge numbers of images that could be analyzed by AI programs. And so, uh, as I, I think your listeners probably know, um, AI has kind of been overtaken by what's been called machine learning and largely neural net-based learning. The, the latest wave is, is what people often call deep learning. And because of the availability of this kind of data and the computational power, there are just some absolutely amazing things that AI systems can do. If you look at, for example, Google Translate, its competence has grown over the years sort of spectacularly since roughly 2012, when they started using these deep learning algorithms to support translation. Um, but face recognition, um, some parts of self-driving cars have gotten much better, although we should definitely talk about that further as we go on. Um, and, and a lot of other very specialized tasks are now being conquered by machines that could be trained from labeled examples, labeled by human experts, huge amounts of data, and with these learning algorithms could improve themselves spectacularly. And one of the, the, the most well-known examples is around uh, the playing of the game Go, which is tremendously more complex and harder than chess. Um, and, and people felt even when chess was conquered that it would be forever before Go um, would be accessible in a high quality way to a machine. Um, and that turned out not to be true because of the ability of programs like AlphaGo and eventually AlphaZero to train themselves by essentially playing games against themselves. And with the amount, the computer speed and the amount of data available, we, we ended up with a machine that beat the world Go playing champion. Um, again, these are, these are good role models for most of the ways that AI has succeeded in the real world. A narrow task, often seen as immensely challenging to humans, 
but eventually through a combination of algorithmic development, computational power, and availability of data and training through machine learning, um, we've conquered a, quite a few narrow, deep, and, and I have to say important tasks. There's no question that while um, chess playing may seem a little um, frivolous, let's say, um, we've seen industry take off in terms of its investment in this kind of AI for application problems that are very important to businesses and to the people who, who um, use them. So narrow AI, if you will, has really come on in a way that many of us who were in the field 30, 40 years ago would never have anticipated, um, but has made spectacular gains, extremely valuable to society. But nevertheless, as you implied earlier, they do tend to share the characteristic that they are narrow and work in these closed environments. So we have some of these AI systems uh, that outperform humans, but in very narrowly defined tasks. So why, in your view, it is important that we should now move on and try to develop AI systems that can work in general settings that are not goal-oriented and are not narrowly focused? Why it is important that we make a move and we make progress in these areas? I think there are a few reasons we want to look at uh, what you might call a more general approach to AI. In some ways, part of it's historical and kind of the attraction that brought many of us into the field, which was the original vision of AI was really of a general, robust, versatile intelligence that could be let loose in the real world and always find something reasonable to do in the face of uh, anticipated and especially unanticipated circumstances. Uh, the vision many of us grew up with in terms of science fiction, of robots walking around or driving around or flying around uh, autonomously, kind of in control of their own responses under any circumstances. It's kind of the dream of the field, an original dream of the field. It wasn't, it wasn't to build the world's best chess playing program or even the world's best Go playing program. Now, it's important that the successes that we've had in these narrow areas be looked at as very significant achievements. I, I don't, when we talk about more general AI and more versatile AI, I don't want to at all imply that the kind of successes that we've had, especially in the last 10 or 15 years, are somehow um, uh, secondary to the larger goal. On the other hand, uh, I think the founders of the field and many of us who have been in it really are looking for ways for AI to be more successful in open environments, in places where the inputs and the moves and the pieces, if you will, cannot be totally anticipated and controlled in advance. Part of that is because AI was originally thought of as an area which we would try to emulate humans. Um, obviously, there are other species with some level of what we would call intelligence, but the grand vision and goal of the field was to reach what is sometimes called human-level intelligence. And one thing that is crystal clear about humans that is really not characteristic of most of the current implemented AI systems is their versatility. Um, let, let's, let's make up an example just to show the difference. Um, we might build the next planetary rover 
with a huge amount of AI on board. And if we send um, such a thing to Mars or, or something further away, it's really critical to have a certain amount of what we might call autonomy because of communication delays from, from Earth. So we can't do what you might call direct teleoperation. We can't run a robot on Mars with a joystick and have it avoid in real time uh, potential disasters of falling into a crevice or hitting a rock or finding an alien life form. Um, it, the thing is going to have to make decisions for itself. Now, we already have some of that on Sojourner, and there have been some deep space probes that have a certain amount of, if you will, autonomy with AI on board. But here's the thing. Let's say the Mars rover completes its mission. It's supposed to find rocks and dust and package it up and put it in capsules for a subsequent mission to come and retrieve and bring back to Earth. And that's the goal, as you were calling it, the narrow definition of its mission. Well, we've probably spent several billion dollars building this thing and putting it on Mars. And let's say in the course of its mission or some other discovery, we find something totally unanticipated that we would love to have explored or or actually taken advantage of. Let's say some kind of metals are found there and we want, if a human were, were there, they might want to mine some of these metals and turn them into structures that can help support the continued existence of, of humans living on Mars. The current kinds of AI we're even sending into space cannot be retasked. Maybe they can within their very narrow areas of expertise, crawling around, picking up rocks, doing soil analysis and things like that. But we cannot tell them, even if we're able to instruct them, here's a new set of things we would like you to do. Given the new resources you would we found, please work through it, through trial and error, make it work, and then report back on what you've done. A human sent anywhere would have the versatility to accept guidance for a new mission, if you will, and even training on the fly. Think of you know the Apollo mission where um, Houston, we had a problem. Um, the, the astronauts in the capsule, while extraordinarily well-trained for almost anything, needed help from the ground and simulators on the ground. How was that achieved? Through communication, through language, to intelligent beings in the space capsule who could then explore and carry out novel practices. AI systems that are out in the world right now, by and large, simply cannot do that. So a very significant part of the reason we want to move to a more general kind of AI is uh, mission versatility, retraining on the fly, learning more broadly from experience from completely unanticipated inputs. But there's other uh, one other, I think, really critically important element here, if you will. Um, I've used the word autonomous, and uh, sometimes people talk about self-driving cars as autonomous vehicles. And, and uh, as it's used in AI, is really kind of a spectrum of things. It's not a, a single defined item. But nevertheless, it means that the entity, the agent, if you will, takes a certain amount of responsibility for its own decisions and actions. If a person or a country is autonomous, they're not driven totally by supervision from the top, right? As if they were puppets. And the thing is for something to be out in the world to act autonomously, 
it needs to have a deeper sense of things that could happen or a way to step back and puzzle through its current situation um, in, in the face of problems it's never seen before and was never trained to deal with. And uh, there's one other crucial element. I, I mentioned the word responsibility. Um, I think right now it's hard to say that most AI systems can truly, in the normal sense of the word, be responsible for their own actions. Um, so let's let's take another real world example. Imagine you build a fairly smart factory robot that's really good at using different pressures in a manipulator to pick up things and move them. It actually has some vision so it can avoid a collision with a human walking down an aisle. It has a certain range of flexibility and intelligence, but it's programmed to do a certain task. If something unanticipated happens and something is destroyed by the action of the robot or worse, a human is injured, um, we still think of the responsibility to lie in the hands of the designer and the implementer of the robot. We can't really say it was the robot's fault in any kind of normal sense. We can't take the robot to court because it didn't have true autonomy. Now, if I build an autonomous AI robot that's self-contained and able to make its own decisions and operate in this factory, and it develops the reasons for doing what it needs to do and then hurts someone, then we're in a situation much closer to what we would think of if it were a human, that this thing has responsibility. Now, if we're gonna get that far with AI, and I think part of our vision of the field is to get there because we keep using the word autonomous, especially when it comes to vehicles, um, then these entities need to have good reasons for taking their actions. They need to be aware of those reasons. Um, they can't just say, I have no idea why I did this. Um, Therefore, I'm not culpable. Um, uh, we're going to need that kind of explanation, if you will. And the robot or, or agent will need the explanation internally for itself so it can justify its own actions or, in fact, it can, um, if you will, game against itself before it takes an action to see whether it will play out correctly. And so there's a level of, uh, let's call it knowledge and reasoning, which we can, we can talk about some more, that something that is truly autonomous is going to need to have that's really quite different than we see in most current implemented AI systems. So I would say um, we have some cars out there that are approaching self-driving in a very limited sense of the word driving. For example, a person is a good driver if they stay in a lane, they don't speed, they observe the, the signs, they generally avoid accidents. That's You go to driving school to be trained for that. Um, that doesn't mean they know how to immediately make really innovative decisions when confronted with completely unanticipated circumstances. Um, so there's driving and then there's what people do I don't have a better word for it. I don't know whether it's traveling or navigating or guiding, um, but, but humans um, make decisions in a different way about unusual circumstances and they do just keeping the car between the lane markers or stopping at stop signs. And at some point, if a car will truly autonomously carry a passenger from one place to another, it's going to have to observe and reason about unusual things. Frankly, they happen to us every day when we're out on the streets. Um, and uh, we've seen many issues with so-called self-driving cars, but 
there's this level of more generality and versatility that we're going to need really to be successful even in the self-driving world. This nicely brings us to my next question. Ron, you suggest in the book that for us to develop artificial intelligence that is not narrowly focused and can work in general settings, we need to understand how humans use common sense. And only after that, we can build common sense in the AI systems. Before we attempt to build common sense in, in machines, we need to understand human common sense. How much do we understand that how does human common sense work? Common sense in humans is a pretty interesting phenomenon. Um, it's certainly been something about which many people have opined over centuries. If you look online, you can find these wonderful quotes from famous people. Uh, Emerson said, common sense was genius dressed in its working clothes, um, just for example. So it's, it's certainly been the subject of people's thinking and assessment of each other forever. Right? I, I don't even know when the term first came into use, but um, we use it just intuitively in everyday lives. Right, We notice when someone fails to use common sense um, or we sort of hit ourselves on the forehead and said, oh, what was I thinking? Um, it was just commonsensical to have done something different. So it's clearly a kind of a universal phenomenon in humans. But interestingly, when you look, say, at the psychology literature, which would be a reasonable place to start to see what we think we understand about it in humans, there's not much insight to be gained right now. Now, there are a few authors and a few studies who um, try to define it in various ways. Um, Robert Sternberg, who's a very successful psychologist, has posited several types of what he calls intelligence. And one he calls practical intelligence. And he equates that with common sense. So he says, common sense is practical intelligence. Now, what exactly does that mean? We have to explore that a little further, but at least he and his colleagues have taken a shot at that. There are others who have called common sense quasi-rationality. Um, um, and while there are some really interesting observations, I don't think it's been quantified. Um, and I don't think these types of descriptions I've given you from the poetic to these more psychologically observed views are constructive in the sense of they give us guidance on how to build it into an AI system. And I do want to go back to one of your key points. There have been a lot of interesting failures observed in AI systems in recent years. It's very easy to find some headline stories where Almost anybody who speaks kind of the vernacular would say that system failed because it did not exhibit common sense. Here, here's a recent example, kind of crazy to understand given how much AI is accomplished, but factual. Um, apparently, there was a challenge going around on TikTok, among others, where they suggest plugging in a phone, but pulling the plug out a little bit so the prongs are exposed and touching the two prongs with a penny. I'm not quite sure whether the challenge is, can you survive the shock or is it exciting or whatever? But apparently there's a story of a 10-year-old, I think possibly in England, who was playing with the kid's mom and was looking for something more challenging to do. So they asked Alexa, Alexa, give me a challenge. And apparently Alexa gave the 10-year-old this challenge, pull the plug out, leave it partially in the socket and put a penny between the two prongs. 
that's pretty shocking, no pun intended. Um, uh, the critical thing there is a normal human being in that circumstance would never have recommended that because it just doesn't stand the test of common sense. Normal human being, why would you do that? You could roughly anticipate what would happen. Maybe not predict it perfectly, but you've seen situations in your life before that you remember, um, and you know what average human beings are capable of doing, all of which are factors in what we call common sense, and yet Alexa did not show any. Okay, There are other things you can read about. There was someone, um, and I don't know whether this was real or in a simulation, talking to an AI bot that was supposed to be a support entity for suicide prevention. And this person described what it wanted to do and then said, I, I'm really thinking of killing myself. And the bot said, you should do that. Um, now, there might have been some underlying logic in some, or, or maybe there were thousands of training examples that led this bot to make that recommendation in a certain circumstance. But in the end, it just didn't make any sense. It was just not commonsensical. And so we're seeing failures of AI systems as they reach I wouldn't say the limits of what they can do, but they get just slightly outside of their core expertise where they break in ways that when the bot said, you anticipatable. Um, they're fragile or sometimes we use the word brittle. And it seems to us, and I, I, my, I want to include here my co-author, Hector Levesque, who, who wrote the book with me, um, that AI systems will continue to have these fatal flaws and not just that they make mistakes, because everyone makes mistakes, but they make mistakes that you can't predict, which is very, very dangerous, um, unless they have a background set of knowledge and ways to use it that kind of the average humans, maybe you know, a 10-year-old, 6-year-old, 15-year-old would have, that typically comes under the label common sense. So in humans... We don't see a clear definition and we don't really see a path forward from the psychology and philosophy literature on how to build it, but it's something we believe very strongly that AI systems will need, especially in the spirit, as I mentioned a moment ago, of having a certain amount of autonomy. And, and let me give you one other example and then, then I'll turn it back to you. Um, I've had experience myself with a supposed full self-driving package in my car. And uh, some things it does very well, the kind of limited driving that I mentioned before, maintaining the right speed, staying in lanes, not bumping into the car in front of it, they're getting very good at those kinds of things. But every once in a while, it'll do something that just frankly, if a human driver did it, we'd look at them and say, are you crazy? What caused you to do that? And of course, the car can't tell me why it, the steering wheel fluctuated wildly trying to get through a, a T intersection at the end of my street. Um, it, it, it has no conception of what it's doing and it has no common sense to fall back on. So mm -hmm. there are gonna be even cases where we're developing great technology that looks like it's working well, such that if we don't give these things some kind of common sense, we're going to see really unanticipated failures, brittleness in systems, and frankly, unfortunately, in some cases, tragic outcomes. In the past 50, 60 years, we have successfully developed 
learning networks to hold knowledge, we have successfully developed mathematical representations of narrowly focused tasks and how machines can do these tasks. Do you think that uh, to develop common sense or general artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, uh, we need to develop totally different mathematical representations, different systems, or do you think that the way uh, research in the field of artificial intelligence has progressed over past 50, 60 years? So naturally, we will get to a point where we'll start bringing in common sense and, and, and general intelligence? That, that is a great question. Um, and it's one of those questions where depending on how picky you want to be about the definition of what we've achieved so far, you could go either way. So let me, let me try to give a, a more intuitive response, if you will. Um, many of the methods that we've invented over the last 60 years for representing knowledge and reasoning with it um, should work equally well if the knowledge, if you will, is commonsensical versus being expert deep knowledge in some narrow domain. Um, some of these techniques, including ones that use various kinds of formal logic, are very, very general. Um, similarly, techniques for representing facts, uh, representing something about the tolerance of a cylinder and an engine and what you should do to get the, the piston to work correctly, which could be a very narrow technical thing, that would probably work equally well to represent the simple idea that if you drop something, it will fall and eventually hit some surface that'll stop its fall. Um, or if you have a container with fluid in it and you turn the container upside down, all other things being equal, the contents will spill out. Um, or a simple fact that one of my colleagues used in an explanation of reasoning in the play, Romeo and Juliet, once you're dead, you stay dead. Now, some of these things sound pretty silly, right? Um, and one of the reasons that AI has had a problem with common sense over the years is that they're so obvious to humans that when we were building systems based with deep expertise, including in the, the old days of what were called expert systems, we never stopped to think that these insanely simple-minded, obvious facts need to be encoded and incorporated in systems. If you're interviewing a, uh, an airplane mechanic about how to diagnose a problem in an immensely complex engine, you're not gonna ask that person very simple, obvious questions about the physics of the world, or if something's hot, don't touch it, and things that we all just learn as kids and find so obvious. So I don't know if the techniques that we've developed over 60 years will fall short of what we need for common sense. It is a very interesting question, by the way, but one of the things that we do need to do, and some of my colleagues have turned their attention to this fairly energetically, is to start to cap short of what we need knowledge base, if you will, of things that all of us would kind of roll our eyes at and say, that's obvious, because they're not obvious to a machine that hasn't incorporated them, right? And they end up being quite critical to complete chains of inference to get from one fact to an end conclusion. And so I think technology-wise, we don't have to totally go back to the drawing board. But I do think there's some interesting things that we should do. Um, uh, several decades ago, frankly, there was um, a, a thread of work in the field that focused less on not on machine learning the way it's done now, and not on kind of formal logical reasoning 
um, with facts and coded and formal logic, but more around kind of a human-inspired capability like memory and being reminded. And I think one of the things you can observe about commonsensical things in humans is that common sense is largely based on the ability to remember experiences. Now, we generalize them. We do uh, prototypical reasoning sometimes. We forget things sometimes conveniently and importantly. But common sense, the, our, our use of it as adults comes from building up this long experience base of doing things in the world and seeing what works and doesn't work and what causes things and what doesn't cause things. Um, and uh, so one would think in stepping back that a basis for machine common sense ought to machine common sense ought to somehow the capturing of experiential knowledge and not just little facts, but in fact, big complicated clusters of, of things together, um, both um, structurally, you know, What's the shape of a doctor's office such that if I walk into a dentist's office, I immediately recognize a lot of the key elements because I'm reminded, even though they're not identical. Um, but also temporally, if you will, um, going through what, what some of our colleagues in the past have called scripts, kind of remembered sequences of actions that you do frequently enough, they become semi-automatic. Um, I think if you look at common sense in humans, um, an awful lot of it has this kind of experiential nature to it. Whether or not we have adequate AI technology in our toolbox to handle that kind of knowledge is a little bit less clear. And I think one thing that's very, very important about common sense is it's not just a matter of having this knowledge, um, but it's a matter of bringing it to bear in a useful way when it's necessary and coming to useful, practical conclusions for everyday activities. And I think that's an area where we've really got a gap in the field. Some people have worked with things they call common sense reasoning, but I think of what we've done as common sense reasoning in the small. We can reason about these obvious facts about the physical world and draw some simple conclusions, but not common sense reasoning in the large or what you you might alternately say acting commonsensically. I think we have a big gap there and that's one of the places I would love to see the field uh, redirect its attention. And a very interesting example that you used in the book and when I was reading that, I just stopped there and kept thinking about that, that if you have a washing machine that has some sort of artificial intelligence and someone puts or hides a birthday cake in that, at least machines should think and decide not to start <laughs> washing clothes. Exactly right. Now, um, it's it's perhaps a little bit of a weird example, but imagine you're giving someone a surprise party and one place you might hide a cake where that person would never look is in your washing machine or, or in your dryer or whatever. Um, and the thing is, if somebody went to turn on the machine and it was supposedly intelligent, um, it would the kind of intelligence we've seen implemented over the years in this kind of more narrow sphere is that it would do a fabulous job of washing your clothing, right? It would get stains out. It would use minimal amount of water. It would be superb at mixing colors and whites. It would know how to use bleach. I mean, you could imagine a lot of intelligence in an intelligent washing machine. But the difference between that and a human, an intelligent human, which you said might have what we call general intelligence is that if a person noticed a birthday cake 
inside the washing machine, it would not turn it on. It might not know how it got there. It might not know what to do with it. But at the very least, it would prevent a catastrophe by not turning itself on. Ron, now that we have these very effective distributed systems, we have the ability to connect various systems together and in a seamless manner. I mean, do you think that there is a thought of having a a higher level layer above these very narrowly designed systems that focus on certain tasks where they could talk to each other? I think that's really critical, but I think the need is to go well beyond specialized areas of expertise talking to each other. Um, Now, if uh, one of the examples we used in the book is um, imagine you have a great system that knows how to do machine translation and you have a great system that knows how to vacuum your floor in your living room, let's say a Roomba. Um, Can you just put those two together and get an intelligent system because they're both kinds of AI? Well, you might get something that you can instruct what to do with your floor in, in a different language, but that's it. There would be no generalization. If you got out of the domain of language translation and vacuum cleaning, there would be no carryover of what you knew in those domains. And I think that's, again, one of the crucial things about general intelligence and humans and and the common sense layer that that you've kind of implied. Um, There's more to it than just taking of maybe a, a huge number of varied types of expertise and just putting them together and letting them talk to each other over a network. Because if you think about common sense. And this is where I frankly think we need to take a look at this again from a more technical perspective and do some, if you will, scientific investigation of common sense. Um, There are some very general meta-level, high-level capabilities that would apply in all cases, right? Don't do something that looks like it will damage yourself. Now, you could have a thousand separate pieces of expertise, and they may all have their own special version of that, but if one of them doesn't have it, it's not going to inherit it from the others. It's kind of a very general underlying capability. Um, and, and how you would build a system, one of the great challenges here, which we start to talk about a little bit in the book, but I think I think needs to be the subject of the next book, if you will, is how do you layer all of these capabilities together and and get this kind of more centralized commonsensical mechanism so it applies when it should and it helps the agent make practical decisions in everyday circumstances um and yet you can still do these other expert things very well right when you're sitting at your desk trying to get one of your computer programs to work and you're looking at the menus at the top of the screen things that you know about driving a car or cooking your dinner or speaking in french they just never come to mind and they're totally irrelevant, right? Um, but you know them. They're in the back of your mind. So if you get up from your desk, you go to the kitchen and you're trying to read a French recipe and you happen to speak French and you want to cook, that stuff immediately comes into play. Um, but then again, as I mentioned, there are some commonalities in all of those situations, right? Do, don't do something that's irreversible if you think it will damage. So you're sitting at your computer and you've got a new program and it's got a familiar menu at the top, file, edit, view, et cetera, but there's something that you're not quite sure what it will do. If you think it will damage something and there's no undo function, 
you're as a just commonsensical human going to say, gee, maybe I should be a little careful. Same thing. If you put the salt into the recipe that you're, you're making and you mix it all up and you use too much, you can't undo it. There's a great similarity in kind of your mental gymnastics and trying to understand between those two circumstances, what's similar. Um, that would, this would not come out if you were interviewing a chef on how he or she cooks. It wouldn't come out if you were interviewing an IT person on how they repair software. It's an underlying commonsensical capability. So again, I, I can't tell you right here how to put it all together, but I think I can say with some confidence that just putting together even a thousand or 10,000 narrow vertical capabilities of expertise won't magically give you an entirely rational, reasonable, versatile um, intelligence system. When I, when I said that we connect them, I'm not assuming this, that something will emerge. We will have to build it. We will have to develop structures and all this. So emergence is not what I'm uh, alluding to mm -hmm. here. When I read your book, I think there are a couple of chapters dedicated to representation of reasoning and then how common sense can be represented. So this is, uh, I, I find some similarities in the narrative that it is similar to when maybe 40 years ago, when we were looking at narrowly focused things and how we can represent moves of chess, how we can represent how you make decisions about driving a car. So it's, it's slightly similar. Was that uh, observation correct that it's a similar approach that you are adopting? I think that's a very fair observation. Uh, one of our colleagues, a guy named Doug Lennett, whom you may know about his work, has been working on the representation and to some extent the use of common sense knowledge for several decades. Started in 1984 and the project has gone on continuously since then. The, the representational technology, if you will, that he's used um, has, has evolved a bit over time, but it still in some ways very much has the style of things that people were experimenting with back in the 70s and 80s. And I don't think that's bad. I don't think that's retrograde. I think it's actually just says that the mechanisms were general enough to allow a wide variety of types of knowledge, both commonsensical and expertise, to be represented in, in the same framework. And so our own view, and we, we, we take a little bit of an extreme view, I think, for the sake of argument, because um, you want to explore a hypothesis and you don't want to get too wishy-washy right away. So you, you put a stake in the ground and say, we believe that this kind of uh, technical apparatus could support what we're thinking of as common sense. And then we, to some extent, as you mentioned, explore that a bit in the book. I, I don't know whether it'll survive the test all the way to the end of the road, but um, it's, it's a reasonable place to start. And I think projects like the site project that I mentioned show that it still has some legs, so to speak. So um, in a way, uh, as you asked, that structure and that style is intentional. In, in some ways, it's also frankly a little intentional to be, uh, to be a little provocative because it's kind of the anti-deep learning style. And uh, you've probably interviewed and spoken to people who are significant aficionados of deep learning and neural nets. And some of them are so extreme that they think the kind of representational symbolic kind of representational could never be part of apparatus that we talk about help lead to a artificial general intelligence. I don't know whether they take that point of view again to be provocative to try to get the 
point of view crystal clear or whether they truly believe that. But in our case, we see the ultimate structure and composition of a fully intelligent general system operating successfully in the open real world as hybrid. There's absolutely no question that starting kind of at the sensory level and on the other end, the kind of motor effector level, there will be um, much more perceptually oriented structures. I don't even know if I'd call them representations um, that process input information in ways that are very different than anything resembling symbolic logic. But I think it's very clear that there is a role for this logical element, no matter what you start with. Um, so here's an example. Again, some, some people suggest that you could build a, a, an emergent, to use your term from your fully general artificial intelligence, strictly with um, the kind of deep learning or, say, the future successors of this technology that are we're going to stay on the path of non-symbolic representation. Okay, um, I, I personally don't believe we're going to go quite that far, but you could probably build a pretty good artificial lizard um, um, and maybe a car that never runs off the road and never crashes into another car and can even file, follow a, a navigation system almost flawlessly. But the thing is, if we're trying to build um, useful artifacts in the world that take on more and more complex tasks and help humans uh, in various ways, for example, to do search and rescue in um, uh, disaster sites where humans can't go inside, if we could add a symbolic capability on top of this lower level perceptual thing and we could instruct the robot in just a few words to do something, uh, kind of along the lines of the Mars rover example I gave before. Why would we not want to do that, right? Why would we not want to take advantage of the fact that humans, more or less different than all other living creatures, have developed and used language, which there is no question is symbolic. And whether or not we truly think in language or how language connects to our perceptual system is still a bit mysterious. I won't take a stand on that. But I certainly think that if we want to build robust, versatile systems that can explain their actions and take responsibility for autonomous operation, it doesn't make any sense to forbid symbolic representation and reasoning. Again, going through your book and what we are trying to achieve, artificial general intelligence, common sense in our machines, uh, it seems that a lot of work needs to be done. A lot of understanding is required. But at the same time, Ron, when I speak with some other researchers in the field of AI, uh, they are very confident. Some people are putting 20 years, 30 years that we will have fully artificial general intelligence working there. And not only this, some people have even started expressing their concerns and worries uh, that uh, uh, if I take the word from perhaps a movie Terminator, that machines will become self-aware. So, so Ron, Again, looking at the book, uh, my view is that uh, uh, a lot of work needs to be done. What is your view that, uh, how would you comment on these statements that 20 years, 30 years, uh, we are just there to get to artificial general intelligence? Great. I'm going I'm to take your question and sort of parcel it out into several sub-questions. And I apologize if that's not what you were getting at, but as I'm sure you've discussed with many of your, your colleagues, it's, it's not that simple. Okay, so 
we are on a, as you can see from the book and the fact that, as I mentioned, we probably need a second book, maybe a third book, and a huge amount of work still needs to go into trying to figure out how to implement commonsensical operation and reasoning in, in an artificial system. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Okay. Um, the, the psych project, as I've mentioned, has been going on for um, 40 years. And we're just so far from having totally comprehensive common sense, even knowledge, let alone the ability to use it commonsensically, that it, it scares me that it's going to take a very long time to continue to build that knowledge. Um, on the other hand, I don't think we're waiting for a, um, a, an absolutely unprecedented breakthrough for something that we can't even imagine now, right? We're not trying to take the idea of quantum computing when no one's ever thought of it before and pull that out of a hat. Um, but we do need a lot of hard work and we especially need work on, uh, as kind of we discussed, the architecture of a system. How do you put all these pieces together? What takes precedence over what? Um, how do you learn from experience in a way that's not just labeled training examples? Um, uh, how do you ask for help? How do you take advice? Um, but I could see a path to get there. Now, let me make something up, but it's always very dangerous to make predictions, right? Um, let's say in 30 years, I could imagine a much more versatile, robust kind of robotic system out there doing a lot of things that we can't do now that in many ways would resemble and emulate people using common sense in a lot of situations, Okay, uh, I, it's not inconceivable whether it's 25 or 40 years, you know, but let's take that ballpark. Um, I don't think in that period, even in that period of time, we're going to end up with something that's as robust and versatile and learns as well as, a, as an eight-year-old child. If you take all the capabilities unified that an eight-year-old kid can do, I think it's going to be a lot longer before we get there. But I do think we are going to break out of this narrow expertise box in a decade or two and start seeing things like the Mars rover I talked about earlier, where you could describe a new set of tasks and a new way to use its sensors and ask it to reason through a new problem and retask it in a way that's much more representative of what we can do with humans. Now, I wanted to, to, to mention one or two other things that you also brought in. So I'm sticking my neck out a little on that. but. Um, you know, it, it feels like it, it might be possible. Um, and for sure, it's not in the next 10 years. Um, but you mentioned self-awareness. Um, that's a really tricky one. And, and I believe you've probably interviewed some philosophers. And that's probably best where the question should lie. Um, I can see building systems in this path that would um, at least resemble being self-aware. Whether they would become truly conscious or not, I, it's kind of a mystical question. I, I would stay away from that. But I certainly think we can build things in the foreseeable future that can stop what they're doing and reflect on themselves and how they're feeling and what they were doing and know that they are different from the person they're talking to or they are separate from the environment and they are the things getting injured if something bad happens. I, I think we'll get to that. Um, exactly what capabilities consciousness adds is an interesting open question. Um, I do think it, it is related to the fact that in our, in our mental executive function, we tend to be able to focus really only on one thing at a time. 
And maybe that's what makes us feel conscious. It's very different than all the stuff going on in the background simultaneously. And then the last thing you mentioned were worries, Terminator worries. Okay. Um, I don't feel like there's an apocalypse coming the way some people have, uh, you know, this singularity. Um, but I think as we put more and more complex systems out in the world and we gradually cede autonomy to them, we get into a risky situation. Um, now, in some ways, if we build them really well and they learn from experience and they have common sense, it's no more risky than trusting a person to do something. People make mistakes. People make fatal mistakes, unfortunately, right? We know how to assess what they've done. We know how to prosecute them if, they, if it was their fault, if there was intent or whatever. Um, I think we'll get computers roughly in that same ballpark where, frankly, they are going to have to be responsible for their actions. Now, will any of them start to act evil and take advantage of their incredible mechanical powers or their huge computing powers? It's conceivable. I think we'd want to be very careful about what we build and what we launch. And I think we should very much pay attention to fail-safe mechanisms, whatever that might be. You know, a big red off switch on the back of the robot kind of thing. Um, but, um, it, and it, it, you know, the other thing is it's hard to see beyond 10 or 20 or 30 years ahead. In 200 years or a century, frankly, all bets are off. So um, I think we should be very careful and along the lines of what you and I have been talking about here, I think we need to take a scientific approach to understanding all of the components that go into an artificially intelligent system and begin to see where mistakes could happen, where intent can come in, where bad intent can take over. I don't think we can legislate it out, but I think if we're aware of it and understand it, um, it will very much improve the artifacts that we create. Ron, we are discussing your book, Machines Like Us. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in the book. Obviously, there is a lot more in the book. Is there anything else that you suggest we should discuss in this conversation before we, we finish? One last thing I want to mention, which you'll recall is, is in the book towards the end, kind of ironic in a way. Uh, when the field, the formal field of AI started back in the 1950s, John McCarthy was one of the primary drivers and a founder and is often credited with creating the term artificial intelligence. Um, frankly, as an aside, I, I wish perhaps they had used terms like synthetic intelligence or machine intelligence, because what we're building really is intelligence. Um, it's not fake, it's, it's real. But nevertheless, um, one of McCarthy's earliest papers was entitled Programs with Common Sense. And you and I have discussed today about how we're still quite far from seeing such a thing, but it, McCarthy tried to sort of get things moving in the right direction. And in that paper, he discussed a, something he called the advice taker. And that has not gotten all that much attention even over the last 60 years, unfortunately. I think as we've spoken about autonomy here today and responsibility and other items, I think, again, one of the most amazing things about people where artificial general intelligence comes into play is their ability to receive and incorporate outside guidance and advice. Not just labeled training examples, but a pat on the back and says, you know, this is what you did wrong last time. I suspect it would serve you well if you didn't do that next time. Or what I would love to tell my supposed self-driving car 
every time you tell me to pull over in the right lane, I can see that there's a slow truck up there and I'm just going to move over. Please stop telling me that until I pass that truck. I certainly would tell somebody else driving the car if they kept pulling that mistake. It can't, the system can't take that kind of guidance and, and, and advice. Some of it will be direct advice like stop now or don't pull behind that truck. Some of it will be standing orders that says, whenever you drive in the stretch of highway, there are police cars along the road, please slow down. That'll just come into play whenever you need it. Um, I think the role of acceptance of advice and guidance um, has been underplayed in AI. And uh, I really would love to see that sort of take a much more prominent role when we think about building what we think of as um, robust AI systems. And that actually introduced another interesting point that uh, uh, there is a concept that you should have human in the loop. So human is making decisions. So if we incorporate this feature uh, where AI is willing to ask for advice or suggestion, so it actually brings human in the loop. So it's kind of a win-win thing here. Yeah, and frankly, it, it just mirrors what we do as people. Um, sometimes you're on your own uh, where there's no one around to ask for help and you have to lean on your experiential knowledge and your common sense and you need to do the right thing. But so often what we do as people, um, it's either explicitly cooperative or collaborative work, or it's simply in a situation where there might be an expert or even um, just a regular person around to say, have you ever seen this before? Or what did you do when this happened last time? And I, I don't see any reason why AI should end up being lonely and keeping only to themselves um, uh, when they're in a world when there are people around or even other AI. So I think that's a, that's a wonderful topic for, for further consideration as well. Professor Ron Brockman, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. It's been great to be here with you. I've, I've had a lot of fun and it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you and goodbye.